Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's the middle of April and the world economy seems in, in free fall. Stock markets all over the world are crashing, at least today. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down, but in either event, they're radically up or down. Uh, retail is crashing. Many industries are in profound free fall. And who better to get a, a check on the world economy than the professor of political economy at Cambridge University, uh, Helen Thompson. Helen, very, very briefly, in a snapshot, how deep is this current economic crisis uh, triggered by the, the coronavirus pandemic? I mean, I think that you know, it's entirely you know, unprecedented in any history that we've got, we're capable of thinking about. And that that is because there has never been a, a situation in which essentially governments around the world have decided to close their economies down and with it close the world economy down. And that is essentially what has happened. So when we've had you know, economic shocks before, we've had governments sometimes unsuccessfully trying to restore economic activity. What we're living through is a crisis in which governments have closed down, collectively closed down economic activity and there is just no precedent for this they're switching off the economic tap but can't they just switch it back on again when we come up with a vaccine or when everyone gets tested is the the fix a simple one at least in the medium term maybe not tomorrow i think not i mean partly because i think that some of the things that have already had to be done are really you know, extraordinary by you know any you know historical standards, the state effectively you know like guaranteeing that it will pay wages for uh, employers, the Federal Reserve Board practically bailing out every you know uh, asset that investors could possibly have have, have uh, bought, including uh, junk bonds. Uh, if you then go to the question of well, what happens? as we gradually go back to restoring economic activity, I think it takes, you know, some considerable amount of, I would say, excessive optimism um, to think that all the businesses that uh, existed uh, at the beginning of March um, of this year can all go back to starting again um, at the, uh, at some point um, in the, uh, in the future, some of them, I think will simply not be um, coming back. They simply can't take the economic, hit particularly um, small businesses, um, of losing revenue on the basis in which that they have. And then I think certain sectors uh, where you, know, you have essentially no social distance in the way in which the economic activity takes place. So, for instance, you know, like restaurants, um, pubs, cinemas, uh, it's going to be pretty um, difficult for them to uh, go back to anything like business as normal because even if we get to the point, you know, like relatively quickly where some um, relaxing right, relaxation of social distancing um, take place, there's still going to be a considerable amount of fear 
amongst people about going to do things that involve being in close physical proximity to others. Uh, last week, Amity Schles, the conservative economic historian, was on the show warning us not to rely too much on economic stimuli from the state. Um, at what point does the blank check from the state run out? I mean, we know that the US government has written a, a, tr- a $2 trillion check, and there's talk of, of, of more money coming to support small businesses. At what point does the fix itself become a problem? Because governments themselves can't spend endlessly to get out of this crisis, can they? No, but I think that it's going to be very difficult for them to stop the fix, the fix that they've offered at, at, at the same time, because clearly they have, they're running up massive amounts of debt in order to um, pursue the policies that they uh, uh, have chosen to use to respond um, to the um, crisis. But you know, if you have you know, protracted high unemployment, it's not like the state is suddenly going to be able to withdraw the economic support um, which it is offered uh, unless people are actually going back to work. And I say I think that's going to be uh, pretty difficult in the short to um, medium term. And the, the politi- I just can't see how politically governments are going to be able to withdraw the kind of economic support that they have given until we're back to something that looks like economic normality. And given that I don't think we're heading back to something that looks like economic normality, I think it's going to be very difficult for the state to withdraw from, the, from that support. You, you can have all the, you know, the, the worries that people understandably have about the moral hazards of, 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 of all this, but I think the politics of it mean that withdrawal is going to be difficult. What systems in, in historical terms should we most be most fearful of? Of course, uh, the, the the inflationary crises of the twenty the nineteen twenties come to mind. But what about the the Japanese deflationary crisis? Is that something that we're more likely to experience as more and more money is invested in trying to put people back to work and 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 and, and stimulate the economy? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we were already in some ways in a world that Japan had served as a, a prelude to before we got to um, this um, crisis. And I think that if you'd said 20 years ago that the state could do all the things that governments could do, all the things that they've done over the last month in terms of throwing money at problems and and um, said that there wasn't any really significant risk of inflation in doing so, people would have thought that you were out of your mind um, in um, in saying that. But it's quite striking if you look at the, the people at the moment who have most you know, daily incentive to consider what the inflationary consequences might be, i.e. those who are buying you know, like 10-year bonds and 30-year bonds, they're not actually worrying about inflation um, at the moment, um, quite the contrary. Now, I think that the truth is, is that nobody actually has any real idea about what the medium-term consequences of this fiscal and monetary response to this um, crisis is going to be. But I certainly don't think that we should take it for granted in any way whatsoever that the consequences will be um, inflationary. I think that it's it's not at all possible. It's it's, it's quite possible to see that that there'll be... um, quite the opposite and that we, we we will be leading into we will end up moving into a period of 
uh, of depressed economic activity. And at a time of depressed economic activity, what should we be doing with our cash? Hiding it <laughs> under the bed, investing in, in stocks, buying gold, buying real estate, buying toilet paper? Yeah, I never know what the answer to invested questions are, so I don't, I don't do it myself. So I sort of don't feel like uh, particularly competent. But what, you know, what I would say um, is that, and I think that this is significant in itself, and it's significant, I think, in terms of what the political fallout of all this is is going to be is is that you know the federal reserve board in the united states is, is pretty much bail trying to bail in anyway trying to bail everyone out where um, investments concern and that the situation with shares is not as bad as it was in the first um, fortnight or so um, of the um, crisis i think in the beginning and particularly that weekend um, after um, the saudis basically flooded the oil market with um, supply, which was the immediate trigger for that big crash, the first big crash um, in share prices. I think the story on the you know, investor side was is that that basic bubble around shares that the Fed had been able to keep going um, really since sort of sometime in you know, like 2010, so that you know, every time that it looked like that there was a risk um, of short prices um, significantly falling. There was some decision from the Fed or indeed from other central banks around the world that kept the show back on the road. And then when they started throwing QE four or five, whichever way that you want to think about it, depending on what you think the, the Fed was doing um, last um, autumn, when they first did that QE, the first announcement of the of a new purchasing program, it, it, it didn't have any effect whatsoever and that looked like the cycle had effectively or that the, the post 2008 cycle had been broken but now it seems that actually the, the the share markets are back to being responsive to what the um, what the what the fed um, does and in some sense it's quite possible that that a, a new share bubble not necessarily of the same scale that we'd seen post 2010 but that that is that 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 is going to continue because the Fed has essentially said that there isn't anything that it that it isn't willing to buy in an emergency, mm, and obviously, particularly in the United States, political reasons for that. Uh, Helen, you may not be an, an expert on the stock market or investment, but you are an expert on um, pan-European economics and politics, and particularly the uh, the politics of the euro. Um, is this crisis, particularly the one in Italy, is it going to break the euro? I think it's very difficult to break the euro. I mean, this has been my sort of constant um, refrain in a way for the last however long it is since I started really um, commenting on the eurozone crisis. Is the eurozone crisis has you know, deep structural flaws, deep fault lines uh, that are in its present form impossible to get around and very difficult for its present form to change in meaningful ways that would allow them to be got around. So in that sense, it's it's in a existential crisis and it has been for some time. But the forces that keep the Eurozone together and at bottom that is fear, a fear of what happens if you break up a monetary union in which all this debt has been denominated in euros uh, and you let loose potentially um, a broader dissolution of the European Union. Those are such you know, dreadful things 
for European governments to, to contemplate as, as possibilities that they act as forces that keep the eurozone the eurozone um, in place. So I think that what we've seen is is that more and more pressure have been put on the fault lines that already existed through this um, crisis. And they've particularly played out in relation to Italy because Italy is a, a large economy that has a high level um, of um, state debt. We can see that some of the remedies that Italians but also others would like to see, particularly um, euro bonds, are still as negatively perceived by the Germans and the Dutch and some other um, Northern European um, governments and are not going to be pursued um, as um, remedies and that in the present political context is going to add to the Eurosceptic sentiment that has grown up in, in, in Italy since the Eurozone um, crisis began in, in 2010. But I still think there is no reason to think that the, 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 if you like, the negative forces that hold the Eurozone together have in any sense um, been, uh, have, in, have in any sense been changed. It still would be extraordinarily difficult for Italy to go back to a national currency and have to re-issue um, that debt, the existing euro debt, in a currency that would lose value. Helen, excuse the naivety of this question. I'm not an economist or a, or a professor of political economy, but doesn't ultimately the euro depend on the Germans being willing to continually bail out the weaker economies? And the euro will break if and when the Germans give up on on the euro project and perhaps even the european project yeah i mean the the way in which the the euro in any if you just sort of sketched out sort of scenarios in which it could break the one i think that would the most plausible would be for germany to leave the the um, the eurozone for german consent to be withdrawn um from the from from the eurozone and I think that there are, you know, not insignificant numbers of of people in German policy making circles who might now have considerable reservations about Germany having gone down the road of agreeing to monetary union um, in the first place, particularly as it was agreeing to what turned out to be a monetary union rather larger than the one that Germans thought they were agreeing to, i.e., in particular, a monetary union that included um, Italy. Um, but you know, the euro also does give the the Germans certain advantages, uh, the German economy certain advantages in relation to what had come before it, the European exchange rate mechanism system, um, in which other countries could devalue their currencies against Germany, and you would have that back as a as a as a real possibility, in fact, a real probability, if 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 if, if Germany no longer had um, the euro that stopped other states engaging in competitive. Um, devaluations um, against it. And given then that Germany pulling the plug on the the euro would be such a catastrophe for the existence of the whole um, European Union, and given that there isn't any um, real any anyone I think in the of significance in the in the German uh, political class who can contemplate, begin to contemplate what the end of the European Union they might not like the euro, but I think that they, that, that that pulling the plug on the whole European Union is a is a whole is a is a whole other um, is a whole other proposition, and it raises so many difficult questions for um, Germany that I see Germany as much more likely to carry on with the 
the muddle through approach to the euro than to pull the plug on it. Helen, you're socially isolating in your home in South London. <laughs> I am. You uh, also uh, you're the you're the co-host of the excellent Talking Politics podcast, which educated me about the Byzantine complexities of Brexit. Um, how is post-Brexit UK dealing with the crisis? Uh, is it dealing with it differently than if if it was still part of, of the uh, of the EU? Um, or are things in the UK pretty similar to what's happening in the rest of Europe and in the United States, for that matter? Uh, I think that it, it it I think there are plenty of or enough um, people who, particularly at the the beginning of the crisis, were quite concerned that Britain seemed to be adopting uh, a quite singular. Or it wasn't actually in practice that singular, but it looked it looked. Um, at least not like the most common um, approach, i.e. That, that Britain went down, went to lockdown um, later than quite a number of other um, European countries. And I think that at the beginning that caused quite some consternation amongst some people and that I think that, that did the, the legacy of, of Brexit did get sort of expressed um, in that. Uh, in the sense that people, some people who were who were deeply un, unhappy about Brexit, um, weren't happy that what uh, what they then saw as as an assertion of sort of some kind of British singularity in relation to um, dealing um, with this um, crisis. I think that um, one of the things that happened here that, in some sense, not necessarily changed the the whole political um, picture, but meant that in some sense that our national experience has been a, li- a little different um, is that, you know, that our head of government ended up getting, you know, extremely, you know, sick to the point where it would seem to have been 50-50 for a certain, you know, couple of, of days last week as to whether he was going to um, live or not. And I think that um, that that had a not completely unifying effect, but a quite significantly unifying effect, uh, at least certainly in the period in which he was in uh, in intensive uh, in intensive care. And also, as it happened, the 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 evening that he went into hospital, not into uh, intensive care, the news of that came. Uh, an hour, about an hour after the Queen had finished her first address to the the, the country in in years, and I think there was some sense in which those that when when people look back here on that on on the crisis, they will they will remember the the coincidence or what happened that that Sunday evening of the of of the two things um, together, and so um, I think that there's lots of things that look like what's gone on elsewhere, including lots of criticism uh, about the government being, uh, and the state in some sense, being unprepared for what it has had to um, deal with. And I think that there is also um, that sense of, well, how are we doing in comparison to you know other countries? And at times it looked like we haven't been doing very well. But I don't think it is 
ended up being as polarizing in our politics um, as perhaps it's been, for instance, in the United States. Finally, Helen, I know you're a big fan of Hilary Mantel, the um, the historical uh, fiction writer. Any other books or writers that we should be reading to either take our mind off the awfulness of this crisis or perhaps to give it some sort of um, perspective? Yeah, well, I was on um, Hilary Mantel, I was actually reading The Mirror and the, the Light, the, the third book in, in her trilogy at the um, the beginning of the, the crisis. And I actually found it quite soothing, including actually, strangely, the parts when Thomas Cromwell has a fever. <laughs> um, I mean, in part because it was a reminder that um, disease has long been part of not just the, the human condition, but the ways in which um, countries' national politics um, play themselves out. This week, completely differently, I very much enjoyed reading a book called Panic at the Pumps um, by Meg Jacobs, who's a historian um, at Princeton. And it's it's basically all about the way in which the energy crisis of the 1970s really shaped American politics, not just in that decade, but into the 80s and, um, in, and in Reagan um, as well. And I think what's really, there are some, there were some really, you know, striking parallels in ter- to my mind in terms of the energy crisis and what we're um, living through um, now. You know, in, in some sense, uh, there was the comic aspect you know, of this that at a certain point when the, the fuel shortages um, become intense in the United States that you also get uh, a loo paper, not a toilet paper um run on toilet paper like we've seen in quite a number of uh, of countries here it seems like in moments of panic that that is what people become most worried about but also because the energy crisis is in a completely different way was a moment when the west had to confront limits that it hadn't really wanted to think about and hadn't wanted to acknowledge um and and that was the ways in which um the actual physical production of oil, how much of it there was, where that production took place could have uh, profound consequences for daily life and for a country's um, politics. And that the idea that everything could just change and that things that you took for granted about um, daily life disappeared and that you were being asked to make sacrifices in order for some the, in some sense for a, a, a national good became something that that that, that people um, had to struggle with and I definitely think that we can see the ways in which what is happening to us over the last month um, six weeks is is that we've all had to deal with a collective existential shock about limits and that that we don't live in a in a in a world um, in which um, we are, we, we can organise things economically or politically, whichever way that we collectively um, choose to, and that these um, you know, limits that human beings, uh, or sorry, that the, these events that human beings have got no control of, are going to be something that we can keep out of either politics or or our daily life. And so and she tells a great story about how Meg Jacobs in, in Panic at the Pumps, about just how profoundly the energy crisis ended up changing the United States. 
You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.